I hope you all were able to, uh, however you do this, print out or download or whatever the, the notes if you're interested. We are going to, I'm going to study chapter 12 through chapter 50 of the book of Genesis, uh, focusing on the patriarchs. Patriarch is a word which just means father. These are the spiritual leaders, spiritual founders, spiritual fathers of Israel. But the New Testament talks about them as well. I, in the note packet, I just gave you a couple of introductory pages. Uh, the first uh, 11 chapters of Genesis, which we are not going to cover at this time. And there is in your packet as well. I think you can see it if I hold it up. But it looks like this. It's just an, it is a synthetic chart of the book of Genesis. And you can see just from the chart that the book, once you get past chapter 11, which is where the Tower of Babel is, it just focuses on four individuals, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's son, Joseph. And that's basically what we're going to be studying. In the note packet as well, I gave you this chart. It looks like this, which has, again, kind of a timeline. But what it does is it gives you the years in which these individuals lived. And for Abraham, 2166, this is BC, so that's 4,100 years ago or so, he was born and he dies in 1991 BC, and then Isaac, Jacob, and so on. This is helpful if, well, let me put it this way. History and historical information and being able to put these individuals in an historical timeline, that's why I gave it. If you're not interested in that, just use this to light the fire next winter because we won't have fire this winter. But let me just make a comment or two about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Um, you must remember that the first readers of the book of Genesis would have been Jews. The first readers of the book of Genesis would have been more than likely the people of the, of the wilderness wandering. Because Moses is instructed by God in numerous places, write this down, write this down, write this down. So the book of Genesis would have been written more than likely about the time that uh, the Israelites are in the wilderness wanderings. In other words, they have left Egypt. They have uh, been to Mount Sinai. That's in 1446 BC, received the law, and begin what tragically turns out to be 40 years of wandering. It is generally assumed that Moses writes this, he begins to write the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament at this time. So the first readers of the book of Genesis would have been that generation of Israelites who are going to uh, enter the promised land. And so you think, why, why is that important to them? Why is it important to read the first two chapters and hear, be reminded, and read, and hear, no doubt, read to them, because that's probably how most of them would have been exposed to it, that God's the creator, that you are to worship him and him alone, because the neighborhood in which they are going to land, in other words, the, the land of Canaan, the promised land, it's a rough neighborhood. To the south are the Edomites, to the east are the Moabites and the Ammonites, and to the north are the Arameans, and then farther to the, to the uh, west of them would be the Phoenicians. They worship Baal and the Ashtaroth and all those. They are in a polytheistic pagan neighborhood. 
And all of these neighbors worship many gods. In, in touch with that worship of many gods was often, as with the, the Canaanites, gross immorality, um, unbelievable pagan beliefs. And what is Genesis telling? You worship the one and only God who created all things. And you don't worship the created things, you worship the creator. And then they understand the fundamental problem of the human race, which is sin, which is what Genesis 3 through 11 is all about. I put it another way, it's rebellion. Because the human race declares its independence from God. And so in the middle of all that, God keeps trying to, trying to shape and mold, if I can put it that way, how he's going to fulfill Genesis 3.15, which is in the midst of that horrible sin and rebellion against God that Adam and Eve launched. God says, but from the seed of the woman is going to come one who will crush the head of the serpent. That's the first announcement of the gospel. That's the first announcement of God's rescue plan. It's the first announcement. God is going to change all this. And then you see the growth of the civilization centered in Cain, because Cain kills Abel. And that civilization centered in Cain is just recorded for us in the end of chapter 4, and then you see the genealogy of chapter 5, and then you open chapter 6. Things are so bad. Civilization has deteriorated so foundationally and fundamentally, what does God decide to do? He's going to destroy everything and start over. Because the line of Seth, because when you read chapter 5, oh, it's actually 10, chapter 4 anyway, with Abel kill, killed, now Seth replaces that covenant line. And so now Seth's generation is being overrun by Cain's generation. And everything about, if I can put it this way, everything about God's plan is threatened. So God says, okay, I'm going to start over. And so he uh, sends the terrible flood, and you know what happens in Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. And then Noah and his family exit the ark, and God says exactly the same thing he said to Adam and Eve, multiply and fill the earth. And remember, they don't want to do that. They stay in Shinar, the, the plain at the base of the Mesopotamian Valley, and start to build this great tower, Tower of Babel. And God says, if you're going to do that, and he institutes the confusion of human language, and they're forced to disperse. In Genesis 10, it's what's called the Table of the Nation, tells us the direction. But it's a very important point. One of three of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, one of his sons is going to be the covenant line, Shem. And from Shem, we get in English, we get the word Semite. And so the Semitic peoples are the descendants of Shem. And you get to chapter 12 and you open the book. God taps a Shemite, a Semite, on the shoulder. And now you have, you have like God's broad promise of Genesis 3, 15, telescope down to one person. And it's Abram. So you have the marvel of chapters one and two, God creating everything. And then you have the unbelievable, unimaginable, almost incomprehensible rebellion against God in Genesis 3 through 11. So you, if you 
understand Genesis 3.15 as a promise, you're saying, hey, God, things aren't working out real well here. If you're going to crush the head of the serpent from the seed of the woman, where is he? <laughs> and I mean, it just it keeps getting worse. And so God decides, again, if I can put it this way, he decides to choose one man is going to start a whole race of people that are going to be the channel of blessing. And that's Abram. And so the rest of the rest of the book of Genesis helps us to understand how is God going to do this? Because you leave the book of Genesis, there are only 70 Jews in the world. And they're in this cocoon of Goshen on the Nile, the eastern side of the Nile Delta, and there are only 70 of them. And so you turn the page and open the book of Genesis. It's 430 years later. And that clan of 70 has gone to a population of about 2 million. And Egypt's filled with Jews all over the place. And that's when Pharaoh, well, you know that we're not going to study Genesis. But this story of Genesis from 12 through 50, after 50, is the, is the story of how is God going to do this? It's going to be through a family, which will become a clan, which will become a nation. And as Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Samaria, salvation comes through the Jews, because Jesus is a Jew. And the Semitic race, that descendant of Shem, the Semitic race, will be through the race through whom God will bring <clears throat> salvation or bring his rescue plan. So if you understand all that, which is kind of a quick overview of the first 11 chapters, I'm ready to start 12. Was, was there anyone that was uh, redeemed <clears throat> outside of that ark? No, 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 nope. Only Noah and his sons and their wives, and so on, and animals, male and female of each animal. Yep. I want you to notice that in uh, in chapter 12 now, just let your eye go up to uh, just the end of verse of chapter 30, uh, 11 with verse 31. Now, there's some names here, but I just want to establish one thing. Terah, Terah is the father of Abram, took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah 205. Okay. Now, this tells us where, where did Abram live when God called him, when God tapped him on the shoulder? And there's a, the, the phrase, or of the Chaldees, you are, or of the Chaldees. If you, a lot of guys during the Iraq War, uh, once, you know, the Iraq War was over and so on, the United States was trying to build, rebuild that country. But anyway, they went down to Ur, and the, uh, under Saddam Hussein, they did enormous amount of excavation around this city, and it preceded uh, Saddam as well. We know exactly what the city of Ur of the Chaldees looked like. It was one of the most uh, wealthy and, to a degree, in the ancient world, cosmopolitan cities. 
So God's calling Abram out of one of the most significant cities of the ancient world. Now remember, we're 2100 BC, roughly. That's 4,000 years ago. And so that's the context of Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, now note, and it should be in all of your Bible translations, Lord is capitalized. All four letters are in the uppercase, they're all capitalized. I think you know that, but I want to remind you if you don't. Whenever you see that, and it's in capital letters, that's Yahweh. That's the most important name for God in the Old Testament, and really, really in the New Testament too. It's, it's Yahweh, the self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am. All of those come from that title, Yahweh. So Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. <clears throat> now, we know nothing about Abram other than what verse 31 told us, his father's Terah and all that. We know nothing about his background. We know nothing about any exposure he had. All we know is what verse 1 tells us. God spoke to Abram and said, get out of the country where you live, and I'm going to take you to a gorgeous, beautiful, palatial place that's just booming with prosperity, lush with agriculture. You will live the good life. That isn't quite what it says, is it? <laughs> to a land I will show you. So Aaron leaves. He doesn't know where he's going yet. But look at verse 2. There's a promise. As a matter of fact, in verse 2 and into verse 3, there are two blessings. Number one, I will make you a great nation. Now, you have to understand how extraordinary this is. Because when God speaks to Abram, he doesn't have any children. And God just told him, I will make you a great nation. Now, the word nation means more than one. We'll read later on that this will be expanded, your people, your descendants will be as great as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. You're not going to be able to number them. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In other words, you are going to be the father of a great nation and you will be a channel of my blessing. I'm going to bless the world through you. Now, I've often, we, we, have, we just have no information on this, but I often wonder when Abram hears that and he processes this, what? What? I don't even have any children. You're going to make a great nation, and you're going to make me a channel of blessing? You're going to make my name great? And then in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So you have you have a second promise here. First promise is I'm going to make a great nation out of it, and your name is going to be great. I mean, people are going to know about you. And secondly, there's something contingent here, Abram. I've got you in the center of what I'm going to do. And those who bless you, I will bless them. Those who curse you, I will curse them. Because Abram, in you, you could translate that through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, let me fast forward 2,000 years to the Apostle Paul. And when the Apostle Paul writes the book of Galatians, his first letter, in chapter 3 of the Galatians and into chapter 4, he picks up on Genesis 12, 3 and says, that blessing in you, all the nations shall be blessed. That blessing is the blessing of salvation. That blessing is the blessing of justification. Now, when God says this to Abraham 2100 BC, I don't believe Abraham understood all this. He certainly didn't understand what I just said. All he does is he hears God saying to him, so far I've got a twofold promise. Promise one, I'm going to make a great nation. Promise two, through you, the earth, all the families of the earth, all the nations, all people are going to be blessed. I mean, this is profound. This is un almost unimaginable. This is the beginning of the framework of what we will call the Abrahamic covenant. And we will read about some of this as we get further into the chapter of the book of Genesis here. Now, the other, the other thing that is important about verse 3 is a, is a promise there that God is making. So let's just think about that for a minute. Your descendants will be great. It's going to be innumerable. And those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. That is, that is mentioned over and over and over again. So we watch, as we, we walk through the life of Abram, and we watch him go down to Egypt, and we watch the things that happen, and as Pharaoh blesses Abraham, God blesses him. Pharaoh curses Abram, God curses him. And you start, you start looking at that through history. And any nation, any group of people that blessed the Jewish people, God blessed them. Any nation that cursed the Jewish people, God cursed them, God judged them. See any examples of that in history? My goodness. History is filled with this. This axiom of how God deals with people in their response to the Jewish people is an axiom of history that you can just examine. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't just a broad idea. This is how God will act from here on out. And over the last 4,000 years, you can see that. I mean, it is an amazing thing to study. And so you, let's just take two examples. You look at Hitler's Germany. In 1933, he is elected. 
by 1945, it's gone. But he, of course, is the monster of the 21st, 20th century when the Holocaust and all that stuff. What happened to Germany? Millions of people killed. Almost every major city leveled. Driven, I mean, and it, that, that thousand year Reich of Adolf Hitler's lasted 12 years. And Hitler took the entire nation down with him because they cursed the Jews. That's a good positive side. You don't hear very many people talk about it this way. You really don't. But unlike almost every modern nation, the United States of America opened its borders to Jewish people. In the great breakup of the Ottoman, uh, break, breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the end of World War uh, I, the Treaty of Versailles, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was dismembered and you have the creation of all those little nations it's it's close to four million Jews fled Central and Eastern Europe and Russia because the Bolshevik Revolution occurred then. Where'd they go? They couldn't go to Israel because Israel didn't exist. The Ottoman Empire owned that. They wouldn't let them in. They really couldn't go to France because France wouldn't let them in. So where'd they go? The United States. And the United States opened its borders and allowed Jews. I mean, there, there had been Jews had come earlier too. I mean, not the, this was an enormous wave of Jews. So that by the time of, of World War II, the largest concentration of Jews in the world was in America. Second was Iran, a lot of other countries. Russia had a huge number. But it's really fascinating. So I will bless those who bless you. The United States did not pass anti-Semitic laws. And the United States did not restrict positions in government or positions in industry to Jews. It allowed them freedom to choose to do. Now, there was some anti-Semitism in pocket, but there was never an official policy of anti-Semitism in the United States. I believe that one of the reasons the United States has been blessed by God is because how we have treated Jewish people. And I believe also that if the United States begins to adopt very formal or quasi-formal anti-Semitic laws, God's going to take his hand to blessing off this country because of Genesis 12.3. There's not a lack of clarity there in what God is saying. It's not ambiguous. What does he mean? I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And so it's in history you can see this validated. And it is because of what we're studying right now. God has an unconditional, unilateral covenant with the Jewish people, and it starts with Abel. And so you have this extraordinary <laughs> intervention in Abram's life and God telling him, get out of this place, Ur of the Chaldees. I'm not going to tell you where I'm taking you yet, but I'll show you. And this is what I'm going to do. So verse 4. So Abraham went. As Yahweh had told him, and Lot was with him. Abram is 75 years old. Because verse 31 of chapter 11 told us that with his father, Haran, they moved, or Tira, they moved up to Haran, which is in the northern part of 
today would be the very northern part of Syria on the border with Turkey. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's sons, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. We will read in chapter 14 of Genesis that Abram had 318 men with him. So that would not include their dependents. And when it says, and all their possessions that they had gathered, that's not talking about a you know, knapsack that they put on their shoulders. This is all their flocks of animals. And they set out to go in to the land of Canaan. Yes, I did. On page 18 of your notes, whichever note packet you're using, it should have 18. I give you a map of this area of the world and the migration line that he will take me. Up here's Haran, and he's going down along the coast into Canaan. Now, Canaan isn't a nation. There's no nation state of Canaan. Canaan is just an area of land inhabited by many, 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 many tribes. And all those tribes are the Ites tribes, I-T-E-S. Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, and they're all the Ites people, the Canaanites. But this is the land itself. He is going from a very pagan city, Ur of the Chaldees, to a very pagan city, Haran, into a very pagan land of Canaan. When they came into the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to a place called Shechem. And you can see that on the map, too. That you, you let you go all the way down the journey. Here's Shechem. Shechem's going to play a very, very important part in Israelism. You're going to, Shechem keeps coming up again and again and again. Shechem is in a deep valley, and on the one side of Shechem is Mount Ebal. On the other side of Shechem is Mount Gerizim. It's going to play a really important part in the history of Israel. You're going to Shechem, it's going to keep coming up again and again and again. To the oak of Moreh, in other words, a big oak tree. At that time, Canaanites were in the land. Why Moses wrote the book of Genesis? Why is Moses telling us that? Abram doesn't own this land. Abram is an alien. A Abram is just journeying through this land. But then verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. That is why the Eastern Mediterranean is called the Promised Land. So, you now have the third part of the Abrahamic Covenant. You now have the third element of God's promise to Abram. Abram, get out of Ur of the Chaldees. I'll show you where I want you to go. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Part number one. 
all the nations will be blessed through you, part number two. And Abram, as far as you can see, I'm going to give your offspring this land. So the land of Canaan is the promised land. Will Abram see his descendants in the promised land? Occupying it. Nope. By the time Abram dies, Canaanites still own them. That's why the book of Hebrews makes a big deal out of this. Abram believed what God was promising. Because Abram did not see. Abram didn't see any part of that covenantal promise fulfilled. He lives to see Isaac born. That's still not a great nation, is it? He will not see his descendants being a channel of God's blessing, and he will not see his descendants occupy the promised land. Book of Hebrews tells us, chapter 11, he believed what God was promising. So that's why the Apostle Paul says, Abram is the paradigm of faith. He believed God. He believed what God was telling him. And that's why it's important to study this material because the Bible is going to keep referring to this again and again and again. He promises God made to Abraham. Abram at this point. I mean, you can't, you just, this is so extraordinary because you, you're familiar with this, I think. And you just read this, okay, but try to put yourself 2100 BC, Abraham is hearing this stuff, and God is promising him a covenant. You know, later we're going to read it. They're going to cut a covenant together. We'll read about that later on. There's going to be a sign to this covenant. This isn't just a passing whim. This is changing the course of history. And this man's going to start to change. So what did Abram do? Middle of verse 7, he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And so that, again, that is really important because that means, put it in a very simpler, that means Abram's response, I believe what you're saying, his response is worship. He not only believed what God was telling him, he worshiped Of all the people on earth, by the way, I want to make sure, this is a little, I'm going to interject this here. It's a little sidebar, but it's an important one. Do not get the idea that Abram is the only believer on planet Earth. Job is a contemporary of Abram. In the book of Job, it's about a man who lived at the same time Abram did. Very far away, not the same place. And when we get to chapter 14, perhaps next week, we're going to hear about a man named Melchizedek, who is king of Salem, Jerusalem, very, very ancient Jerusalem. And he is a priest of the Most High God. He's a believer. He's a worshiper. He leads people. So we know at least two people that knew God. And because Melchizedek was king of a city, I mean, there were a lot of people. So don't get the impression that Abram is the only believer on planet Earth. 2100 B.C. That would not be correct to say that. But as God always chooses to do, he selects one person that he is choosing to be the channel of his blessing. 
could have chosen Job, but he chose Abram. And so through Abram, is going to, now we're going to start filling in all of the, that's what the rest of the book of Genesis does, fills in all these details. How in the world is God going to fulfill these promises? Because a reminder, the Canaanites own land, and a reminder, Abram's 75 years old and doesn't have any kids yet. So, I mean, you kind of have this, I think you all, it's a rather incredible situation. No matter what human criterion you use, this stuff doesn't make much sense to me. But what is important is that Abram believed what God was telling him. Abram is a paradigm of faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Abram is the epitome of that. God is saying things to him, promising him things that don't make any sense. There's no tactile objective evidence that this is ever going to occur. And he's 75. Well, <clears throat> everything else. All right. Everybody with me? Verse 8. From there, Shechem, see, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And you can see that on the map. We're not very far, but here's Shechem, where Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, in that valley. And he just moves a little bit kind of the south, a little bit southeasterly, and Bethel. Then pitched his tent. And with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So he moves a little bit farther south, builds another altar, and worships the Lord. Verse 9, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now the Negev, on this map, it, it doesn't mark that, but the Negev is farther south. The Negev is the beginning of a desert. It goes all the way down to the base of the Gulf of Aqaba and the Red Sea and all that stuff. So, I mean, he's, what he just keeps journeying south, keeps going south. He's right on the edge of a desert called the Negev Desert. And then verse 10. Now, there was famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe. So, I mean, it's just telling us information. It's not explaining anything other than famine causes him to go to Egypt. Is Egypt the promised land? No. <laughs> so he's from Ur the Chaldees, lives in Tehran for a while, kind of zips through the promised land, now he's in Egypt. And he's saying, just wait a minute. God made all these promises, now he's in Egypt. And when he's about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Incidentally, Sarai is not 25 years old. Sarai is not 35 years old. Sarai is not 45 years old. She's not 55 years old. By your standards and my standards, Sarah is an old woman. And what did he just say about her? You're beautiful in your appearance. 
She went to the 24-hour fitness center every day. She watched what she ate with meticulous frugality. This was a woman who, who knew how to adorn her body with beauty. I'm making all this up. I know if none of that is true. And he said, when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife, and they'll kill me. But they will let me live. But they will let you live. What now do you see missing in Abram's life? Integrity? Faith. <clears throat> he had the faith to move from Ur to Haran. He had the faith to go down to Shechem and all that. Here God promised all this stuff. Now he's down in Egypt. Is he trusting God here? Not really. Not really. Now be, to be blunt, it's a very real fear. I mean, th th what he just summarized is probably exactly what could happen. So out of fear, not faith, it creates this deception. Say, I'm in verse 13, say you are my sister. Now we're going to learn over in chapter 20, verse 12, that Sarah is actually his half-sister. So this is kind of like a sort of the truth, partially true, a half truth. But that's really not what he's communicating is. Say you're my sister, my blood sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. Now there's a little for your sake. Now, honey, you don't want me to die, so let's go through with this deception for your sake, honey. You're going to live. Isn't that a good idea? When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princess of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Stop there for just a minute. Sarai I've now been taken into the court of Pharaoh to have coffee with Pharaoh. She's going to have a snack with him tomorrow morning. The intent of this man is that Sarai would now join his harem. Now just process that for a minute. What did God promise Abraham? A nation as great as any nation. So the whole covenant promise could blow apart here. If she has sexual relations with Pharaoh and she becomes pregnant with Pharaoh's kids or something like that, the whole covenant program is down the drain. So his, this is Abram, Abram's deception is threatening the whole covenant promise. This is a very serious business. Instead of responding in faith, trusting Lord, you know we had to come down here with his family, Lord, and you got to take care of it. You don't see him praying any of that. He's afraid. Understandable. I mean, understandable. He's afraid. And so now his deceptive actions and those of his wife Sarai are threatening the entire covenant program. So God doesn't know what to do, right? Not, don't ever say that. God knows what to do. <clears throat> 
Verse 16, for her sake, he dealt low with Abram. He had sheep and oxen and male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. It's first mentioned in the Bible of camels. The critics of the Bible used to say, oh, that's a joke. That's funny. That's all made up. There weren't camels 2100 BC in Egypt. You know what? There's a whole bunch of archaeological discoveries made in the 20th century that show all kinds of illustrations on the, the walls of some of the tombs of camels all over the place. The Bible isn't lying here. It's reflecting reality. Because camels were, if you ever go to the Middle East, you see camels everywhere. I've been there many times. Your camels are everywhere. They're running wild, they're all over the place, and they're herded, they're kept, they're, they're valuable animals. What's the first word of verse 17? But the Lord Yahweh, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now that word plagues, it's it's about we don't we don't know exactly what that means. What, what was the content of that specifically? What was going? We don't know. It's the same word, incidentally, that's used in Exodus seven of the ten plagues that God sends on Egypt when Moses says, "Let my people go." So it's the same word, but the details that we don't know. <clears throat> what did Genesis 12, 3 say? I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So Sarah called, excuse me, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? Said I took her from my wife. Now take your wife. Here she is. Take her and go. Pharaoh kicks Abram out of Egypt. He won't let him go through the immigration procedures. He doesn't give him a green card. He kicks him out of the country. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him that they sent him away with his wife. And don't miss this. All that he had. Abram leaves Egypt, a wealthy man, because of verse 16. The sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So he leaves Egypt, a wealthy man. Why was Pharaoh so quick to recognize that situation he had correctly? It is generally understood that he called his, his uh, sages together and said, what is going on? You have made the God mad because you took something that wasn't yours to take. Other than that, we don't know. Did you say gods? Gods, yeah. I mean, Egypt, Egypt worshipped literally hundreds and hundreds of gods. So um, it, in some way, he's making the connection, whether his advisors told him that or he just, you know, I just took Sarah as my wife, brought her into my harem, and this all is happening. 
there's a cause and effect relationship there. And his advisors more than likely said, this is, the gods are mad at you for what you've done. And so he boots him out. He, Pharaoh, boots him, yeah, him out. And so, I mean, you, this is very important. This is a very important piece of material for us to understand. Because remember that Abram was already a man with lots of servants and lots of animals when they moved from Iran into the promised land, into Canaan. Now he leaves Canaan, he goes back into Canaan even wealthier. God is blessing him. But it also shows you even the deceptive plans of a person who walks with God can bring about serious consequences. The entire covenant program is threatened by what Abraham did. And yet God protected him and protected even more importantly, Sarai. And so you have this, you have this great man of faith. But he still has those moments when his faith weakens. And he tries to say what Frank Sinatra said. I'll do it my way. You don't know what I'm talking about, but that was a song Frank Sinatra said. And so you have this, this extraordinary situation where God is still protecting him, guarding him, because the covenant program is at stake. Hey, Jim. Now, chapter 13 is another very important part of the story, but here you see Abram's faith again. You saw that little ripple. Oh my, he didn't trust God. He lies and deceives. God still protects him. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and locked with him into the Negev. I, I told you where that is. That's that desert. Beersheba is right on the edge of the Negev. He's now he's back in Canaan. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. So, I mean, this is just rehashing what we studied in the previous chapter. He's back in Canaan. He's there with that altar at Bethel where he had built. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who, is, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Now, why does Moses add that last sentence to verse 7? It's important. Because Bethel and Ai are in the hill country. That's not great land there. Who had the best land? The Canaanites. They've got the best land. So here you have this situation. There's been an outpouring of God's blessing upon Abram and Lot, his nephew, who's with him. We read about that when we, we saw them leave Iran. So you, you have this situation. God has blessed so much, the land... The land can't meet the needs of a flock. Look what Abram does. He says to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. 
Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So what, what you see here is we got to divide everything, Lot. Now, we have this enormous amount of land. You choose. Now, Bethel and Ai, they're right on the border of the Jordan River. Right across the Jordan River is, you know, the east, the Jordan Valley, rich Jordan Valley. And to the west is Canaan. Go north, Galilee, south, into Judah. I'm using the names that come up later, anyway. So, I mean, it's like, wow, that's a good choice. And Abram says, you choose. I'm not going to, I'm the oldest. I'm the one God commanded, but you choose. I'm not going to exercise my authority. You choose. And whatever you choose, I'll accept it. If you choose the right hand, which presumably would be to the east, then I'll go to the left. I'll go to the west. If you choose the west, I'll go to the You choose. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zohar. So that's interesting, like Egypt, because Egypt was the breadbasket of the ancient world. The Nile River Valley was the richest river valley in the, in the Mediterranean world. So that makes sense. But like the, like the garden of the Lord, what's that referring to? You obviously didn't hear that question, so I'll repeat it. The garden of the Lord, what's that referring to? Somebody said it. The Garden of Eden. That's a simile like the Garden of the Lord, but so what 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 why does Moses bring that up? Like the land of Eden, got it, that's the most fertile area in the Mediterranean world. It's the breadbasket of the Mediterranean, got it. But like the Garden of the Lord, could could this be alluding to Eve? Because it's exactly the same language. You go to Genesis 3. Eve lifted up her eyes and saw that the fruit was good to eat. Lot lifts up his eyes and saw. So what is he doing? He sees what looks like it's lush. I'm choosing that. Is it, are we to think about this in the same way, Eve? Lifted up her eyes, saw that the fruit was good to eat, she ate. He lifts up his eyes and sees it's like, looks like the Garden of Eden. I know which one I'm going to choose. It's interesting. It's, it, Moses is using exactly the same construction, same grammatical construction that was used to be in Genesis 3. Moses adds a parenthesis. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Why is he telling us this? Because that's Lot's destiny. Lot chose. And we've got to wait till Genesis 19 to see it. He chose one of the most wicked places in the ancient world. But it sure looked nice. That's how we're to think about this. Oh, let me, I'll be all right. 
Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, moved his tent as far as Sodom. As far as Sodom. He chooses to settle in Sodom. That will be important information. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, I'm going to come back to this next week, but let me just read this. Then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated, lift up your eyes. Exactly the same phrase in verse 10. And look from place to the place we are. Look northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if none can count the dust of the earth, your offspring should be counted. Walk through the length and breadth of your land, for I will give it to you. I want to start with this next week. Now, what is God doing? He made a general promise. I'm going to give you the land. Now, he's explaining to Abram, what land is it? As far as you can see, north, south, east, and west. Yes. Is it that, will Abraham see this? Will he see this descendants live there? Nope. <clears throat> but he believed what God was telling him. He believed what God was saying. He believed the promise. I have a lot more I want to say about this next week. So we're going to start with verse 14 next week. All right. Are you with me? Abraham is the beginning of God instituting the rescue plan for humanity. It starts with Abram. Why did he choose Abram? Because Abram was a man of faith. And God's saying ridiculous things to him that he believed. A ridiculous I'm in the human standpoint. It's ridiculous to promise these things. He's alone. He doesn't have any kids. <laughs> God making a promise. So we're going to talk more about this next week. So I'm going to pray and then let you go out and enjoy. You want to put your swimming trunks on, go out and take a sunbath this afternoon. It'll be a lovely afternoon in December. I ask God this morning, God, you do know that this is December 1st. I thought I'd remind you of that. He tapped me in the shoulder and said, who's in control of this world? <laughs> Father, we thank you for the book of Genesis. Thank you for the character of Abram, an historical figure that's a giant when it comes to individuals of faith. Uh, the Bible says this over and over and over again. Abram was a man of great faith. And we're already seeing. He slips a little bit. He stumbles. But his faith in you is solid. We're going to see more of that next week as well. So thank you for the privilege that we have together to study the Word of God. We pray for these men. Watch over them. Take care of them and all the responsibilities, all the things that are part of their lives. God, I ask you to deepen their faith. May they learn from this study of Abram that men of faith are men you honor. Men of faith are men you, honor, you bless. Men of faith are men you use to accomplish your purposes. Men of faith are the channels of your blessing to other people. So, Lord, we want to be available to be those channels of blessing because we live to all and bring honor and glory to you and your dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, and have a great rest of the week.